Please be seated. Scripture reading this morning is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to take it out and turn to that passage. If you don't have a Bible that's with you, then there's one that's on the rack in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 784. Now, based on the comments that surround this passage that we're about to read, the timing of what we're reading is probably around 586 BC, right as the city of Jerusalem is about to fall. We've been studying Jeremiah throughout the fall here, and this would be the culmination then of the judgment that God had promised would come upon the nation of, of Judah. A punishment, a judgment that was because of their persistent, their flagrant rebellion against him. And so it's, it's somewhat curious then that at this moment, and perhaps also interesting in the light of this historic and cultural moment this weekend, that we come to one of the most hopeful passages, some of the most hopeful words in the entirety of the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Listen as I read. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the word of God. And this passage that we just read is like a, a window, a window in time in a, in a sense. And, and through it, it gives us the ability to look backward, to look inward and to look forward. Look backward and look inward because it uses this word covenant, which is a word that's frequently used in biblical history. And so it invites us to look back and say, what is the context historically for a word like this? And it clearly, in the way that it's phrased, is, is looking forward to something, identifying something that's coming, something that's different, something that's new. At a moment of great national upheaval, a moment that was very scary, God is offering hope to the people through what he refers to as a new covenant. But before we look forward, before we can really understand and appreciate the importance and the, and the comfort that this new covenant would bring, we have to look, we have to look back, right? Because, because it will be far less meaningful unless we understand the context for what Jeremiah is offering here, what God is offering through Jeremiah, the personal context and the historical context. We need to see our need of what's being offered. And we have to appreciate the historical problem that has resulted when this covenant has been spoken of before. And, then, and only then, then and only then, can we look forward and see its perfection. So, that's, so in summary, that's what we're going to do. Covenant need, covenant tension, and covenant perfection. First, covenant need. We need to start with the need for a covenant. Because I don't think that we always understand what a covenant is. 
Now, if you've, I mean, if you've been in, if you've been in and around church, hopefully, hopefully, in particular, if you've been in and around this church, you've heard the word before. Right, we talk about it when we do baptism. We talk about it when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when you, when you attend a wedding, when we talk about church membership. The word is used. And, and you may even remember, it, like, you know, if, if I were to ask you the question or someone to ask you the question, what's a covenant? You might even say, oh, yeah, covenant. I remember that. I've heard you talk about that. I remember, I think I actually remember a really good Sunday school lesson where that was explained to me. Yeah, covenant. Could you tell me again what a covenant is? I might go something like that. And, and I'm telling you that that, that's, that's somewhat understandable if that's, if that's what you say because outside of church settings and in some very technical kind of legal setting for, for attorneys, the term is rarely used, particularly when it comes to, to relationships. So we don't, we don't really know what it means to be in a covenant relationship with something or with someone. And I think we have to admit that that's in part, at, at least, because, because we don't really think we need what a covenant has to offer. And so you have this sort of circle of, circle of ignorance, right? We don't know what a covenant is because we don't think we need it, and we don't really need it because we, we don't think we need it because we don't really know what it is. Right, so let's, let's break that sort of circle of, of, of ignorance. Let's, because the promise of the new covenant will mean nothing if we don't feel our need for it. And because I would argue that we desperately need a relationship, the type of relationship that's found only in a covenant. But why, we don't, why don't we feel that then on the surface of our lives mostly? Well, because most of our relationship with things in this world are not covenant relationships. Most of the relationships that we have in this world are either, on the one hand, consumer relationships or they're contractual relationships. Consumer relationships or contractual relationships. Now, what's a consumer relationship? A consumer relationship is one that's based on sort of mutual benefit. And it lasts only as long as that mutual benefit is being experienced. It's, it's relatively casual. It's based almost completely on preference and on, and on feeling. And it can be left without any kind of penalty or harm. Right? For example, grocery shopping. Right? Now, if you live in this region, I was somewhat amused this week as looking at social media to see some of your comments about Wegmans. Right? How many people, how, admit it, how many people have been to Wegmans this past week? It's just opened, right? And, and what, what I found particularly humorous is some of the guilt that was associated with that, like you were cheating on your old grocery store. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, shop, right? I'm really sorry. Right? Now, I mean, that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I found it humorous because that's the same conversation that Stacy and I had on Monday after she came back from Wagman's. Right? Store, it's, it's great, good prices. It's so much nicer. It's so much, you know, and I know that marketers will tell us that there is such a thing as, as, as brand loyalty. But at the end of the day, a grocery store is just simply a consumer relationship. Right? If ShopRite provides for me the combination of a good experience and good prices, the, a combination that meets what my needs are, well, then that's where I'm going to shop. And if someone else provides that in a better way, well, then I'm going to go and I'm going to shop there. Then I'll have a relationship with, with them. And it works both ways, of course. Right? If the grocery store isn't receiving from you the money that they need, well, then they'll just close up. They'll just stop. They don't need to ask you about it. They just, they'll just close. They'll just stop selling you things. They can do that. Now, what's, what's wrong with this? this? This maximizes my choices, right? It gives me options and flexibility. Americans like this kind of thing. We like choice. We like our needs being met. And we like the ability to move on to something else when our needs are not being met. So what's wrong with it? 
Well, with grocery stores, probably nothing. But in relationships, lots of things. Right? There's absolutely no stability in a relationship like that. Right? It's all about meeting, uh, meeting someone's needs. And, and sometimes that can really hurt. Right? Think, think how hurtful that's been, perhaps, to you in a, in a relationship when something like that has happened, when that's been done to you. Right? By a friend, maybe, or, or, or perhaps a spouse just moved on because they got a better deal elsewhere. Right? So a consumer relationship might meet, our, might meet our needs, but it lacks any kind of stability. Now, you can solve the stability problem with a different kind of relationship, with a contractual relationship. In a contractual relationship, you enforce stability by making the terms of that relationship binding. You spell everything out. I agree to do this, you agree to do that, we don't have to like each other, but this is what we're going to do. We can just, and, you can, and you can't just walk away from it without pain, without penalty. Right? Same examples are pretty obvious here too. Right? Every time you borrow money, right? certain employment agreements, maybe your cell phone contract, something like that. And, and the advantage, of course, in a contractual relationship is you gain the stability that you don't have in a pure consumer relationship, but you lose all of the personality, right? Others can just, just walk out on you. Uh, they, they can't just walk out on you, right? But of course, the downside is, is that you can't just alter the relationship whenever you want to. It's, it's, it's firm, it's, it's fixed. And at times, you want that. You don't want to alter it. But there's also, you also probably know the feeling of being stuck in a relationship like that that's just simply gone cold, a contractual relationship where one party doesn't really want to be there. And that, in its own way, can be equally painful, can it? Because in that case, the agreement becomes just simply a business arrangement. And all the joy, all the passion, all the, all the love is completely drained out of it. See, in a contractual relationship, there's no love. There's nothing personal about it. So in a consumer relationship, you have no stability. In a contractual relationship, you have no love. We need something more. Our hearts long for a relationship that has both stability and love, commitment and concern. We need a relationship that has both. And just parenthetically for a moment, this is a time where it's very acutely aware, that we're very acutely aware that there is a large segment of the world that looks upon the consumer attitude of the West and all of the downside that comes with that, the moral licentiousness, the heart and the heart, and they look at that and they say, you are, you are evil. Why would you want something like that? Now, on the other hand, you have a large segment of the world's population in the West who looks upon the pure, rigid, contractual relationship of formal and stifling religion and says, do you see the downside of that? Do you see the evil that, that, that can come from that? And do you see what that dichotomy is saying? We long for something different, for a covenant. That's what a covenant does. A covenant is a commitment between persons formed in love that binds those persons together. A commitment between persons formed in love that binds those persons together. Binding personal relationships formed in love. And that's what we need. Now that's a very broad definition. And I haven't really mentioned anything particularly about God yet. But, but do you see how that leads us to God? See, the reason why we sense a need for a covenant is because we're made that way. It's an argument from design. We're made for a covenant relationship. 
So it should be no surprise to us then that the Bible reveals to reveals that the God who designed us, who made us in his image, is a God who establishes his relationship with his people through a covenant, through covenants, through binding personal relationships that are formed in love. He gives us what we need. That's point number one, a covenant need. But there's a tension here. Point number two, covenant tension, attention. Because if covenants are, are formed in love, then it means that there is a blessing to be sought, that, the, that there's joy to be had in that covenant. It's, it's formed, it's founded in love. But if covenants are also binding, then it means that if we break them, that the blessing is replaced with cursing. Blessing and curses. Blessings to be sought and curses to avoid. And that's part of the covenant formula that God has with his people from the very beginning. Right? So let's use as a window to look back as we kind of understand what a covenant is. Go back to the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, God creates Adam and Eve. He creates them in his image, which means because God exists in eternal relationship with himself, that he creates us in his image with a need for relationship. And so he doesn't just create Adam and Eve and just kind of then hide. He seeks them out. He makes a covenant with them. In our church here, our, our defined statement of, of belief, our confession of faith that we, that we subscribe to is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And they, it, it calls, refers to this, this covenant with Adam and Eve as a covenant of life. Right? God speaks with them. He gives them meaningful work to do. He, he, it's loving. There's great blessing in it. It's life. And yet, it's also binding. Which means that there are stipulations, there are conditions that go along with this covenant, which is why the covenant is also sometimes referred to, this covenant of life is also sometimes referred to as the covenant of works. Because the work that's required to receive the blessing with Adam and Eve was obedience, perfect obedience to God's authority, summed up specifically in the command that God gave them not to eat from the fruit of the tree that was in the, in the Garden of Eden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And most of us know how that went. Right? They disobeyed. Right? They ate the fruit. And as a result, they found themselves on the outside of the covenant of life, which means they die because they couldn't do the works. Now, this, of course, is the introduction of some covenant tension, right? An indication that there is a problem here. Now, of course, the problem is entirely the doing of humanity, not the doing of God. But nonetheless, you have it. But see, God wasn't done. And as the Westminster Standards puts it, God did not leave humanity to die. He did not leave humanity to perish in its sin and misery. Instead, he enters into another covenant. This covenant referred to as the covenant of grace. A covenant of grace because, as we'll, as we'll see and, and as Jeremiah makes plain, because it's not based on our performance like the covenant of life. It comes only, as the Westminster Standard puts it, out of God's mere good pleasure. In other words, God chooses to establish another covenant because he loves us. And so it begins right away. Immediately after the failure of Adam and Eve, God tells them right away in Genesis chapter 3, right after the, right after the covenant of life is broken, that he isn't done with them yet. Right, now this doesn't, this doesn't, though, eliminate the covenant tension. And actually, in some ways, it actually seems to highlight the covenant tension even more. Because if God is going to is going to start again. On what basis can a perfect God do that if Adam and Eve have had rebelled against him? 
Now, maybe, maybe you reason just this once. Right? I mean, God could just call a mulligan. Just do it over. Right? Pretend like what happened didn't happen. We're just going to start again. Now, I'd argue philosophically, theologically, that God couldn't do that. He could, actually couldn't do that. His perfect character wouldn't allow him to do that. But, but even if you think he could have, just that once, the covenant tension would still exist from where we sit and look back over history because, of course, the human race has continued to rebel. Right? And you don't have to go any farther than Adam and Eve's own sons. Right? Cain gets angry at his brother Abel and he kills him. And then just spirals from there to the point in Genesis 6 where God looks down at his creation and it says, he sees how great man's wickedness had become, that every inclination of their hearts was only evil all the time. But instead of wiping out all of humanity, God continues this covenant, this covenant of grace, by rescuing Noah and his family from the flood. Right? And then he makes a covenant with Noah, a promise to him and his children to be in relationship with them hope for humanity after the horror of judgment. And he gives them a sign to remind them of, of that, the rainbow. Right, but the people, of course, after that, they don't obey God again. <laughs> and, and God is forgotten, and they go, and they build their civilizations, and they're scattered across the earth. And so many years later, God comes to a single man, Abraham, and God tells Abraham that he's going to be a great family and a great nation, and that through him, and specifically through the offspring of his own body, he is going to make a blessing to the entire earth. And so he makes a covenant with Abraham. Because through Abraham's seed, through his son, Jacob, he's going, he's going, God is going to bring blessing. And so God gives Abraham a sign of this to remind him of that circumcision. But the blessing that is going to come to the whole earth through the family of Jacob seems to get stalled when the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt. And so God comes to Moses. And through Moses brings the people out of slavery. He rescues them. And he leads them into their own land. And on the basis of that rescue, he promises to establish a nation, a nation of Israel that's going to be governed by God's law, by God's commands. And so God makes a covenant with Moses. And God gives Moses a sign for the people of Israel that would point them to him, his standards, his perfect standards, the law. And, and, more than, and more than any of the other expressions of the covenant of grace, the, the law highlights this, this tension that still exists. See, in each of these covenants, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with, with Moses, ultimately with David as well, there's, there is a binding agreement between the parties that come with certain obligations, obligations that must be fulfilled. And in this case, God, God's obligations are always met, but the people's obligations never are. Right? They just, they don't fulfill their end of the covenant. And the Mosaic, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses, just highlights this even more. Now look back at Jeremiah 31. Right? Because this is the covenant, the covenant with Moses, to which God is referring in verse 32. And in a sense, I think he's inviting us to look back at the entirety of his revealing of the covenant, but he's specifically referring to, to Moses because in the law that was given to Moses, we see clearly the perfections of God laid out, right? His expectations, his commands presented. Now, the people, when God gave his commands, they started breaking them immediately, right? He, he, they were unfaithful to the faithful husband. God was faithful. He remained faithful. That's what he says in Jeremiah 31. But the people were not. Even though I rescued you from slavery, you broke my covenant. That's the covenant tension. 
and it spread throughout the Old Testament. Now, Old Testament is just simply another it's just simply another term for Old Covenant. Testament and Covenant are basically the same term. Right? In the covenant of grace, as it's revealed in the Old Testament, God promises, on the one hand, blessing and abundance and joy to his people that is, in many cases, unmistakably unconditional. He guarantees it. He swears that it's going to happen, and he guarantees it by, the, by, by his own name. He, 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 he points to the credit of his, of his own honor. Earlier in Jeremiah 31, we looked at this last week, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Right? Unconditional, everlasting. God's word cannot be broken. And yet, seemingly at the same time, every time you have this covenant presented, every covenant promise seems at the same time to be conditional. Right? With commands to obey God's law, threats of curses if those commands are not obeyed. Right? That's why the Babylonian army is standing at the, at the walls of Jerusalem, ready to level it to the ground. Right? Jeremiah has been telling this to the people for years. You're not keeping the conditions of the covenant. You're being unfaithful to your loyal husband. Judgment is coming, and now here, here it is. So unconditional and conditional. It's the covenant tension. And it isn't resolved here. Right? But just like Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 opens a, a window that allows us to look at the past and understand the context, it also opens a window and allows us to look at the future. Because it says in verse 31 that the time is coming when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant. Right? And that's when we begin to look a little bit more closely at verses 31 to 34. Right? Because, and it took us a while to get here, and, and we won't spend as much time here, but, but I don't think it's possible to appreciate what God is saying without the context. Right? Both the personal context, our own covenant need, and the historical context, that covenant tension. Because now these covenant promises that are explained in verses 31 to 34, they explode with power because here is where God promises that he will meet that need that we have and he will resolve that tension. He promises to perfect the covenant. That's point number three, covenant perfection. Verses 31 to 34, we go th you go through them and you see this series of promises that point to the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant. And God collectively puts it under the heading of a new covenant. Look at verse 31. First thing he promises is a new community. He says, I will make, I will make a covenant. I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In other words, he promises to bring together those that were separate. I mean, in many places that Israel is used to refer to all of God's people in its entirety, but in its specific political sense, like it's being referred to here, it was the northern ten tribes of, of, of Jacob that had long ago had, had, had been sent into exile. And in contrast, the two southern tribes of Judah, which is what's being specifically re referred to here in, in Jeremiah. Right? God is saying he's going to bring them together. He's going to unite that which was separated. The second promise, verse 33. The first part of verse 33, he promises he's going to change their hearts. He says, I'm going to put my law into their minds and I'm going to write it on their hearts. See, rather than Rather than write the law of God on tablets, like in the Mosaic Covenant, and then ask the people to internalize that, now he's going to come in the New Covenant, and he's going to write the law of God directly onto the hearts of his people. Right? See, the command of God does not abandon the, the law. It still demands obedience, but it promises new power to obey what we could not formally obey. Right? It's the working of the Spirit on the inside of us that now transforms our, our desires. That's the second promise. 
Third promise, look at the second half of verse 33. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is, this is the classic covenant formula. God and his people. God gives himself to his people so that he can have relationship with them. He did this with Moses when he told them, he told Moses to tell the Israelites that he's going to bring them out of Egypt so that he can be their God and they can be his people. Right? You, you see it in the wisdom literature, in the Song of Songs. You see it in the, in the prophets, in, in places like Hosea. Over and over again, God comes to his people and repeats the covenant with, these, with this kind of language. I will be your God and you will be my people. One of my seminary professors called this the Emmanuel principle. Emmanuel. This is God promising to be with us. And the theme is central to God's covenant promise. Him dwelling with us in restored relationship. That's the third promise. Now, the fourth promise. Look at the first part of verse 34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the greatest of them, from the least of them to the greatest. Now, this is not teaching that everyone will become a part of the new covenant. Some people, many people, will reject the covenant offer. But it is saying that everyone who is a part of the new covenant, everyone will know God, know him. And not, so no one's on the sidelines. The least, the greatest, everyone knowing God. Now this, this is the know in the Hebrew sense, in its deepest sense. Knowledge between persons that, it, that are wholly committed to one another in every sense. Right? encompassing all, all aspects of their being. It's going to be from the least to the greatest. Right? It comes back to our sense, of, our sense of need to be known by God and to be loved by God. Right? At the same time, God is saying that's what's going to happen. Right? But of course, up to this point, we have all of these great promises, but we haven't yet resolved the tension. It's the same tension. How can God fulfill the covenant promises when we, fulfill, when we fail to fulfill the covenant obligations, the conditions? Or to put it differently, why is this covenant going to be any different than the covenant that was made with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and with David? Right? Because all of these administrations of God's covenant with his people, all of those find their fulfillment in this. Right? See, the new covenant doesn't replace the old as in, like, discarding it because the old is, is bad. No, the, old, the new covenant replaces the old because in the new, the old is fulfilled. It is the extension of it. It is the fulfillment of the old. Right? And there, there, are, there are few passages in the New Testament that are quoted as extensively as Jeremiah chapter 31. In the Gospel of Luke, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, in Hebrews 8, in Hebrews 10, over and over again. Why? Because God wanted us to see the very clear, the very bright, bold line that leads us from the promises that he's making here directly to Jesus. Because in Jesus Christ, we have the final resolution of the covenant tension. Right? The covenant promises are extended to us even though we fail to fulfill the covenant conditions because ultimately those conditions are met by Jesus. Look at the fifth promise at the end of verse 34. It says, God will know them for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And that is, isn't it, the heart of the tension. Our failure to meet the conditions of the covenant needs to be forgiven and the old covenant could never really do that. 
I mean, it could point to it. The law of Moses could tell us that our sin needed forgiveness, and the ceremonial law could, could point us to the fact that a sacrifice would be required to make it happen. But it wasn't until Jesus sits with his disciples and, and eats the Passover meal in fulfillment of the law of Moses on the night that he would be arrested. And after he was done, he stands up and he takes the cup that's on the table and he picks up the cup, it tells us in Luke chapter 22, and he said, this cup is the new covenant. And this is the only place in the Old Testament that phrase is used, new covenant. This was unmistakably what Jesus would have been referring to. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. We say those words every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Right? Do you see what he was saying? Do you understand what that means? He's saying that the forgiveness of our wickedness is now possible because he will die. He's saying to his disciples that the resolution of thousands of years of covenant tension is now literally standing right in front of them, literally in the lifeblood of the man who is standing there. Right? Jesus is the one to whom every covenant points. He is the second Adam who obeys God's command. He is the ark that rescues us from the wrath of God like it rescued Noah from the flood. He is the offering of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the law of Moses, and he is the forever king in the line of David. And Jesus is the answer to every one of these promises that's here in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. He is the new community, Paul tells us in Galatians, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, because we're all one in Christ Jesus. It is his work that the Holy Spirit writes on our hearts, it tells us in John 14 and John 16. Right? He is the Emmanuel, John chapter 1 tells us, who comes to be and dwell with his people. And so do you feel that? Do you feel that covenant need? Years ago, I read John Grisham's novel, The Testament, right? which, which, is, which the title is an intentional play on that word, the testament, a covenant. The main character in that story is a guy by the name of Nate O'Reilly. He's a lawyer, and he is assigned to, uh, to execute an estate, the last will and testament of one of America's richest men. And the only person who is named as the heir of this estate is a missionary woman named Rachel Lane. She's the illegitimate child of this billionaire. And the only problem is she lives in the remote jungles of Brazil, and she's not accessible. So Nate's firm decides to send him to find her. And he goes into the jungles of Brazil believing that he is carrying with him the most amazing news that she ever could possibly want to hear. I mean, what more could a poor missionary woman in the backwoods of Brazil want more than $11 billion? And so he fights his way through the jungles and he dangerous boat rides and sickness and illness and he, and he finds her and he delivers to her the covenant, <laughs> the testament. Right? But she doesn't want it. This testament, this covenant, is not something she really needs. And so she rejects it. Jeremiah is bringing to you a covenant. He's unfolding it before you. And he's pointing to the one who went much farther than through jungles and rivers to bring it to you. He's pointing to the one who came from heaven to earth to put into your hands the testament. Ironically, in, in Grisham's novel, it's Nate O'Reilly who discovers that he is the one who is in need of the testament, and it's not the $11 billion. This missionary woman causes him to question everything that he had ever known about his lifestyle, about his priorities, about everything. And one day he's wandering, 
while he's down in Brazil and he finds a church and he hears the music and it draws him in. And there, in that church, before him, he comes face to face with the offer of the true covenant. Grisham writes, In one glorious acknowledgment of failure, Nate laid himself bare before God. He held nothing back. He unfolded enough baggage to crush any three men. I'm sorry, he whispered to God. Please help me. And as quickly as the fever had left his body before, he felt the baggage leave his soul. With one gentle brush of the hand, his slate had been wiped clean. Wiped clean. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The need of our heart is a covenant relationship with God. We have that through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, in light of our history, there is absolutely nothing that we have to commend ourselves to you. Absolutely nothing that we deserve, that we have to deserve a relationship with the perfect God of the universe. And yet, Lord, you condescend and you come to us and you speak to us and you offer us an everlasting agreement fulfilled not by the conditions that we met, but by the conditions that you chose to meet on our behalf. And so, God, it is in gratitude and it it is in amazement that we thank you for that. And God, I pray that if there is anyone here who finds themselves like Nate O'Reilly, who finds themselves questioning what their life is all about, that they would see, accept, and understand and receive this covenant. And God, for each of us who have maybe heard this before, who, who do trust you and follow you, Lord, may we find our joy, the power, and the strength of our living in the fact that we are bound to you irrevocably, unconditionally, by the power of your love expressed to us through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.